Hey everybody, what an episode. I could talk to Alex for hours, probably even days. I really appreciate the time that he took out of his busy schedule to meet with me and just talk some really great topics. So this was episode 14 of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast, and I'm referring to Maine artist Alex Poland. Um, His specific to Maine fly fishing art is just downright cool, and it was awesome to talk to him about his new venture in Bethel called Western Maine Yurts. Uh, we spent a lot of time towards the end, the end of the interview talking about the upper part of the Androscoggin River in Maine, and I kind of consider him the Androscoggin River Keeper. Um, he just spends countless days on the river and has experiences that likely nobody else has. So it was really great to hear his thoughts on what we can do to improve that fishery. Take my word for it. This is an episode that you will thoroughly enjoy. So your name's been on my list of podcast interviews for for quite some time now, and um, I've just been really excited to talk to you because you're somebody, like, over the years, I've looked at your fly fishing art, doing the yurts thing now. Like, you just have this different approach to everything. It's pretty awesome. Um, and I've just been wicked impressed by, like, your unique, like, specific to Maine fly fishing art that you have. Like, that's really cool. Like, you're not just making brown trout to make brown trout, like... Everything you do is kind of specific to Maine. All your, I mean, I'm looking around here right now with all your pictures, and you have a sucker over there, for God's sake. You know? <laughs> it's pretty sweet. So, um, yeah, I've just, I've always loved your art. I've always admired it. And, like, I can't even draw, like, a stick figure. So, for me, everything you do is just, like, it's super foreign and just really intriguing. So, um, we'll talk about your art, talk about the yurts, and then we'll talk a little bit about the Andrew, which I'm yeah. pumped to talk to you about. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, let's start with, why don't you just tell people kind of like where you grew up and like how did fly fishing come into your life? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up in Woodstock. Um, I didn't fly fish as a child, but I think I started fishing. I was like five and we had Andrew's brook behind my house and, uh, and I got a little, little rod with a Zebco 202, you know, and, yep. and, and went out and that's kind of where I fell in love with trout because it's just a great little tr- brook trout stream. And uh, you could go all the way up to where it was like was spring fed and bubbling out of the side of the mountain. And you could awesome. catch fish up there. Is, and, uh, is Woodstock where they have the uh, you can pull over on the side of the road and fill up? There's like a spring. Right that there. is. That's in Woodstock. That right? is in Woodstock. Yeah, I was a little bit more south Woodstock. That's like north Woodstock. Okay. That way. Yep. <clears throat> and um, great little variety store in Woodstock there too. Yes. I used to get sandwiches coming back through. Oh yeah. From drafting like all the time. So yeah, Bros is like kind of moved back and forth in there and uh but yeah that was my hometown growing up and then um I didn't fly fish until I was in my 20s Mm -hmm. and I like I've gone through like every phase of fishing I was like the brook fisher my whole childhood then got sick of that and like my family had a camp so then I spin fish for bass for my teen years and then and then actually like when I was around 20 um, my wife now, um, she loved going to the beach. And so I didn't know anything about striper fishing and I burned so bad. So she'd lay out and tan. Yeah. I'd be sitting there cooking, looking like a lobster and I'm looking around and there's people catching all these big fish on the beach. I'm like, I got, I got to figure out how to catch those. So I started spin fishing for those. Yep. 
And then, um, yeah, and then probably my mid-20s, I started fly fishing. On the salt or, like, freshwater? Um, no, I started freshwater. I actually started just for bass, like, at our camp at the time. Yep. And then, um, and then from there, it just snowballed. And, and, uh, and I, I, I actually really learned to trout, fly fish, trout-wise, like, on the little andro. Like, nice. And, um... Just close to, just like a close to home spot, Close to right? home, yeah. great hatches there, stocked fishery. I mean, it's just catching, you yeah. know, a bunch of stocked fish, but, like, it was good. You know, the the waters that I fished, you, it was, like, good waters. You could dry fly fish some of them, nymph some of them, streamer fish some of them. It was a real good place for me to learn. And, uh, I mean, pretty good hatches, nothing super prolific, but, like, um, but there was always something hatching and like everything hatched there. So you got yeah. like a chance to kind of check everything out. And, um, did you teach yourself or did somebody, yeah. you did? Yeah. Yeah. You I did. I did. I was like, yeah, but I'm like an information guy, you know yeah. what I mean? So it's like, just get books and read. I mean, and I asked tons of questions, yeah. um, whenever I was around somebody, but it would have been cool to kind of have a mentor, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It was fun kind of just like struggling through it. I remember going in like my early twenties when I was really learning and going to like LOB at like 1030 at night. Yep. Cause I know no one would be there. And then I would just poor guys there. I would just pick their brains. <laughs> like what's nymphing? And the guy right. drew me like a diagram of it, an orange piece of paper. And I kept it for like five years. It was hilarious. He probably made his day though. Like, he like, so, yeah. Like sometimes you go in and like people just, they love that. You know what I mean? I would too. Like if somebody was an inquiring mind about something, it's like, okay, yes, let's yeah. sit down and have a conversation so, about it. So I used to just go, like my friends would be out drinking on Friday night. I'd be able to beans. Get, get the guys the inside scoop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what you do when you self-taught because, you know, you're trying to take the learning curve away, you know? And yeah. And I think, I don't know, there's just, I've taught myself a lot of different things over the years and I don't know, it's, it's rewarding. Yeah. You know, it's, it's rewarding in, in a lot of regards. and But f- learning how to fly fish, though, that definitely, yeah, you start out and you're just like, okay, this is a dry fly. This is what a fly is supposed to look like. And then somebody tells you that this is an emerger and then, you know, this is, and you're just like, your head's kind of spinning. So then you got to so figure all that out. Yeah. So and then, rolling. and then you're like, okay, so I know what a caddis fly is. And then you're like, wait, there's different like life cycle stages that I need to be concerned with. So then you're like staying up at night researching that stuff. And do you remember being new though and going looking at like fly boxes and being like, I don't even know where to begin. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, when I started out, I just basically looked. I just, you know, you just buy flies that you think look good. Yep. And then you just sit there and you're like, I don't know, I'll, I'll put this on. So true. Then you're dragging dry flies through, you know, the water like a, you know. <laughs> I was reeling in a blueing olive. That's how I caught my first brown trout. I was like literally reeling. Yep. Like not even stripping. Yeah. Just reeling back up the river. I thought it was a cool looking little fly. And that was it. And I didn't know what tip it was, so I kept having the buy new leaders because I yep. keep cutting back and I'm like oh this one's done here's a new one <laughs> <laughs> yeah I would do you for that oh I would go through leaders like candy because I was just when I first started out it was crazy I mean you know I'd go I'd go fish for an hour and I probably would have like 40 fly changes yeah you just keep snipping back yeah, yeah so I mean I like I could go through I could go through a leader in a night I should have like that's what guides should do, though, for brand new people. It's just take that little learning curve off and be like, listen, like, this is what happens when you get back. And yeah. Now you want to tip it. And yeah. This works. Like, 
Yeah, that mallet leader can last forever because, like, the more you fish, the lazier you get. You're just like, okay, it's this time of year. Uh, I like this river. Yeah. Um, I'm going to fish with this fly tonight. It's and that's it. <laughs> and you don't take it and off. That's it, no. and you, you know, some, and sometimes you just, and sometimes you might even just take the difficult route. I mean, you know, I'll go places and say, I, I'm going to see if I can move a fish with this fly. Yeah. Just yeah. for fun. Just for fun. Right? Just for fun. Just for the challenge. Yeah. And you know what works uh, from past experience. Right. So. Yeah, fly changes, you're right. Like, I won't change all day sometimes. Just kind of keep going until yeah. they want it. So, um, How about art? Like, were you art artistic kid growing up? Yeah, so, um, well, no. I mean, it kind of came to me, I guess, over time. But, like, um, my family's very artistic. Like, on my, my mother's side, mm-hmm. um, my great-grandmother was an artist. My grandmother was an artist. My uh, my mother has, has sisters. And uh, they all are super artistic and can paint and draw. And my mother, um, she didn't do as much art like later on in my life, I would say. But like from my early four, like when I was four to five to probably about the time I left the house around 20, she was kind of really involved. And um, I did homeschool in high school so I could snowboard more. And uh, so my mother like taught like art classes for like homeschool groups and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so I grew up doing it and, um, but I was more of a sketch artist as a kid. Um, and I really enjoy, I love that. I mean, yeah. it was great. It was quick, fun, you know, you didn't have to put a lot of time and kind of thought into it and a lot easier, you know, you're just dealing with a single value as opposed to like oil painting, you know, learning how to yeah. mix paints and what do you want yeah. for brushes and what do you do with this and what do you do with that? See, that's like the overwhelming thing to a new fly fisher. Like if I wanted to start painting, I'd be yeah. overwhelmed by all those different types of paints even. And how do you, if you mess up and you're 90% of the way into something, like how do you fix it and stuff like that? So. <laughs> Sometimes you just throw it. <laughs> you just throw it. Like, yeah, that's, good. <laughs> that's crazy to me. Like that would be my worry is I get like so far into something and then I mess something up and I either have to restart or it's not going to look good. Or I just saw a great Instagram video the other day. There's this artist that I follow on there and uh, not a fly fishing artist. He's just portraits, portrait artist and uh, just really amazing. He's a European guy and uh, – he it looked great to me. He was doing this kind of like multiple uh, portraits in like a kind of like a carnival circus like setting, and they're kind of moving around. Um, and he didn't like the face, so he just puts white paint over it. Yeah. Sketches it out again and just does it again. So cool. And it looked amazing, but yeah, I mean, I th- I think the big thing is just not getting too discouraged. It's. I think w- I think way more people are far more artistic than they, they know. than they know, and I sure. think that it's uh, more people are scared about like taking on like something like a painting or yep. a drawing. There, it's like the initial fear of just doing it, and then if you just kind of get over that, it's it's you know. Well, it's like doing a home project, like something new. Yeah, you don't have skills for, and right. you're like, all right, I'm gonna go spend all this money on this stuff. I'm gonna yeah. do this, and then it doesn't come out the way you want. Yeah. And you get pissed about it, right? And, like, I think that's, like, to me, that's my fear. Yeah. It's, like, I get really deep into something. It doesn't come out the way I like it. But, I mean, if I tried painting any picture like you have around here, it would take me hundreds and hours, yeah, hundreds and thousands of hours, right? Like, just to, it, just to kind of get yeah. those skills down. So, like, 
Well, I'd I be mean, disappointed right yeah. off the bat. Well, I mean, like it's funny because like a lot of these that you see here, yeah, you know, a lot of these are old. Like this one behind you, that's like that's like an old painting that I did. Yeah, and like um, like I don't I don't like it. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I, I don't like it, but it's like. But what's funny is I try to not get too discouraged because what it is There's is so it's like detail here though. But it's like an evolution of things. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's like you look back at the works that you did like eight years ago, it's true. and it's like it's it's like a it's like a timeline. So I try to not get discouraged about yeah. it. But I know what you mean. But I think. Um, yeah, I think I think there's a lot more people that that are more artistic than yeah. they think. But it's a hard thing to measure too, because a lot of people say, "Well, this isn't good," and then you say, "Well, you know, how do you know it's not good? It's so it. subjective." You know what I mean? I'm always looking for like fly fishing art to like you know put in the camp, put in the house. Yeah. I just like it. Like I like I just like walking down the hallway in my house and looking over and seeing a brown trout picture. Like yeah. it's just cool to me. Yeah, and. It helps me like daydream a little bit in the middle of February on a cold day. So. Oh yeah, I it, it's nice to be connected. I mean, I like I follow so many fly fishing artists, and I mean, there's some really cool, innovative stuff that's out yeah. there right now, and I like the really kind of odd, offbeat stuff. And I mean, I think that's why I like Derek the Young's always been so awesome. He's got because some stuff. He does, and like, but he always like has that fine line where you know he'll have a piece that I really don't care for. Yep. And I think he probably, it's probably that way for everybody, but I think that that's what makes him so great because he is somebody that's always pushing the envelope as far as perspective, um, what mediums he wants to use, colors, like he's just, he's always on that edge, you know what I mean? And so, and that's what makes art great. And that's what I like sure. about it. And like, um, I really am drawn to more stuff like that. Because then like the, like the photorealism the, stuff is great, yeah. but like it's so cheesy though. Well, it's Sometimes. like if you if you want something to look exactly like a photo, you everybody can take amazing photos now with the technology That's we got. True. So it's like you can have a photo. And I mean, there's there's some amazing artists that have photo realistic stuff, and I wouldn't want to take away from them because it's an unbelievable skill that they have. But right. personally, I like seeing an artist's. Um, interpretation i mean that's kind of what i think yeah. makes it cool yeah and that like for me that's kind of where i was going was like i'll find I'll, you could just go on google type in brook trout picture right or brook yep. trout painting yeah and you just get like this cheesy stuff that all looks the same you know what i mean like it's almost done by computer design yep and there's just something more authentic about like painting and then just like a like an artist like you versus like I don't know where these people are making, you know, getting these. It, I do. I do think that like digital art has um, definitely changed the landscape of things. And yeah. I think like um, if you go back to when art was first being put on, it was kind of like an interesting, you know, uh, change where, you know, art was getting fly fishing. Art was getting put on fly reels, you know, yeah. and it was getting put on fly boxes and it's on shirts and it's on jackets yeah. and it's on, it's on people's boats. Now it's on their vehicles, it's on the coolers, it's, it's, right? on, the coolers, it's on your, you know, your, your your rod vaults and all these different things and like but then what happened from that is a lot of people that are pretty good digital artists just started creating things so like if you if you look now i mean there's like digitally created you know it, it is a form of art you yes. know what i mean yeah. but um it's not the same as an oil painting right it's like, not like i mean and that's the thing like a lot of people have approached me and they'll say like well i want i want this you know, and, and, and I have to explain to them that I, I actually don't do art on a computer. Like if I'm going to have something rendered so that it's in a digital form, so it could be printed, I, I have somebody else do that. That's not yeah. my forte. And so I'm like, I, I, you know, I, I actually sit down and paint with like hogs hair brushes 
and oil paint like they did like you know a thousand years ago sure. and uh it's awesome. it's it's fun it's fun and i think that you know there's still a place for it and yeah and uh well clearly because like so i discovered you in like 2013 ish maybe okay. like that yeah i just ran into you fishing one time yeah and then I knew your name from your art somehow, just something probably through social media or whatever. And then from there, I was just like always intrigued by your stuff. It's just really cool. I love how it's specific to me. And then you just went nuts from there, though, over the few years after that. Like you started doing all the drizzle stuff that you do. Yeah. You did your hide boat, which is pretty bold in my mind. <laughs> That's one thing I'm like, I don't want to mess that up. <laughs> then you have to repaint it again. Yeah. Or whatever, so... It looks sick, though. It's awesome. It's held up pretty well. It has. It, it is. It's held up really well. Do you well. have to make, uh, do you have to, like, touch it up every winter? So that, no, like, uh, so, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. I, uh, I bought a bunch of Plasti Dip off from Amazon. In, okay. like, in, like, that, like, green, oh, like, OD green, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then I was like, eh, I think I need to, like, wrap this in vinyl. So then I was going to get, like, an OD green vinyl, do that. And then I found um, this guy, which was really hard to do, like, because, you know, I I had my drizzle art scanned. And then from there, you could you can cut it, you know, out of vinyl. The hard part is there's drips and drops and little splatters everywhere and everything. There's like so many fine lines with the drizzle art that you got to find somebody to weed everything out. Gotcha. You know, so you cut a sh- you cut it in a sheet, and then you got to weed it out. Well, I found somebody that was like, "It's pretty cool." I, yeah, I'll 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 weed that vinyl and cut it for you. So, I was gonna go the vinyl route. So I tried to return. It was like eighteen or twenty cans of this plasti dip. I was gonna return it to Amazon, and uh, they're like, "No, we don't return that." Like that's that you know we we sure, won't return I mean, that it's chemical or exactly. Whatever, yeah. So I'm like, oh. Oh, I didn't know that. And they're like, well, we'll just refund you for it and just keep it. Yep. So at that point, I was sitting there with a whole case of Plasti Dip. And I'm like, yeah, it peels off. I'll just try that and see how it holds up. I'm actually really happy that that's the How do you apply it? Just spray it. It's like an aerosol spray spray can. Yep. So I I flipped the boat over. At that time, I did a a Wetlander um, epoxy um, coated bottom to the boat and fixed that up, which is a great bottom. It's really slick. Um, but anyways, and then I sprayed the Plasti Dip on it, came out pretty good, and then we put cut vinyl over the top of it. I think it's been like four years, possibly. And what did you just tape off? You just taped off like the top part of the yep. boat, right? Yeah. And just paint, you just sprayed everything and yep. that with that green. Yep. And like, so actually, I mean, if somebody wanted, if I sold my boat and somebody yep. did want it to just be, it's a black, white, and it's a black and white two-tone hide yep. like layout, you just peel it off. You peel it? Yeah, you peel it right off. It's rubber. Like, do you need... Really? So you just got to get at it with, like... Yeah, a, you just got to get it... Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. And, like, rocks on the side might, like, ding it up. Yep. Um, but you can just you can just touch up that spot, and the stuff is really weird that it, like, it blends with what's already there really well. You can't really tell. That's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. So it's held up good. Wow. And then, did, so did you paint the drizzle... I did not. I had the drizzle cut out of vinyl, yeah. and then I just applied the vinyl over the top of the plastic. And then what do you have to epoxy over that? Or no, something like that? that's it. No kidding. That's it. And it can take on water, obviously. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, it's held up. I, I'm shocked at how well the vinyl stuck. I mean, it's held up really good. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, how did you get into fly fishing art? 
Like, when was that? When did you start doing stuff with fish? Um, it was at least before 2013, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm yeah. trying to think. Um, <laughs> we just, like, bored one day? Like, hey, I'm going to draw fish. I'm gonna, like, well, fish well what's funny is when I grew up, like, I like I mentioned that I was, like, a sketch artist. Yeah. And uh, my mother was a painter. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was an oil painter. And so she always would be like, you really should try painting, Alex. You really should try painting. And, like, I was, you know, mostly a teenager at that time when she would, you know, kind of want me to try it. And it was like, you know, it's just, you know, yeah, like, no, that's your thing. That's not my thing, you know? Right. And, uh, but, and I never really had an urge to do it until I started taking pictures of all these fish and they just had these amazing, you know, colors. And so I'm like looking at these photos. It was like the first time that I actually had this urge where I was like, I gotta like, I gotta like use some color here and I want to like paint one, you know, paint this. Yeah. You know, and, and it was, that's just what kind of inspired me. It's been a lot of fun in that. I mean, I haven't been doing as much art in the last couple of years because of the, the yurts that I've yeah. been doing and what have you. But like, um, it, what's neat is when I was younger, the hardest part about art was to find something that you wanted to draw or you wanted to paint, you know, yeah. like the, you know, it's, it's really hard if you don't have any passion or desire to just be like yeah sure i'll i'll take the time to sit down and paint that you know it's just it's hard but like when you love fly fishing it's just easy because i mean you've got photos and then like when you get deeper into it i mean i have so many ideas that rattle around in my head all the time as far as just like composition layout like different perspectives that I'd like to I, take. I know what you're saying because I never draw ever, but like sometimes I sit with my kids when they're painting pictures and drawing stuff, and I'll just be like, oh, I'm gonna try to draw like a trout. Yeah, that's like all I'm interested in. Yeah. Then my kids start drawing them now. Like my daughter can draw a better trout than me. She's six. <laughs> but I know what you're saying. Like you wouldn't have the urge to sit there and draw a picture of a potato. Right. Exactly. Or a tree or whatever. Exactly. Some sort of pattern. Yeah, and I mean, and maybe there's some people that like. You know, there's people that like figure drawing or that are so committed to art that they like drawing things that they aren't interested in, yeah. but but that's not me. Yeah. And that's why, like, usually when I do art, it's more of a winter event typically in the past because that was when I had a little bit more time to be able to dedicate to doing it. Sure. And, um, and in the past, just kind of the creative process for me, I'm like a, I'm a pretty streaky painter. Yep. So, like, I could get on... I could just get on a painting tirade and I don't watch TV for, you know, two months. Sure, I, yeah, just, just, I just paint, I just paint for But then two you months. feel burnt out at some point. Right. And then, right. then I take a break and like typically, typically I, I do take a break, not unless there's a commission or something like that in the summer months. Yeah. I really do try to just kind of recharge and get my inspiration and nice. take some nice photos. And So, um... We'll talk about the yurts here in a second, but do you do you ever do commission pieces for people, or do you just kind of I do do things as you go? No, I do. Um, I've turned down more in the last couple of years just because of time constraints. It's busy, yeah. Yeah, but um, but no, I do commissions. Cool. Um, they're usually priced a little bit more just because it it takes a little bit sure. more to kind of get into the space of what they want to do. But they're fun. The commissions kind of push you a little bit, you know, because it's like it's easy to do what you want to do. Right. And, uh, so some of my favorite pieces that I've done are kind of unlike likely commissions that I've done. And so yep. they're good. That's cool. Pushy a little bit. Yeah. That's very cool. I mean, Hey, it's a great little like 
side business too, right? It is, yeah. I mean, and I, I hope, you know, kind of part of my, my business plan, because I have my hands in multiple things, yep. you know, over the last five years is just to try to free up some time. You know what I mean? And that's the hardest thing. Yep. <laughs> it's the hardest thing. But I like, know, because something's going to give. It's going to be fishing. It's going to be art. It's going to yeah. be one of your multiple businesses you have running. You right. Know, your kids, your family. Right? Exactly. It's a juggling act. But, it you know, is. I as time goes on, I want to be able to dedicate a little bit more time. It's so cool. I mean, my dream, my dream would be even if I just dedicated a day a week. Yep. I mean, you know, if I could get to a point where I said, okay, six months out of the year, Fridays I paint. Sure. You know, it would be, be great. Yeah, just give yourself, like, uh, I've talked to another artist, like, they said, like, they just give themselves a time. Like, yeah. every Friday morning at 7. Actually, writers are telling me that, too. Like, yeah. every Friday morning at 7, I'm going to sit down and write. And right. I think I could get into that routine. The big thing that's kind of funny about me, like, painters, you have you kind of have two different kinds of painters. You And you have, uh, like, well, like, my mother was one of these, like, if she got started on a painting, she'd get so inspired and so into it and so focused. Yeah. I mean, she she might go for fifteen hours, twenty hours. That's I awesome. mean, just she just go. I mean, yeah. she might go stay up all night painting. And yeah. and you have that. I'm not that kind of person. Yeah, like you'll like, come back to it. Oh, I do. And like, I have a period of time, and I and I know it. Like I, I can focus, and my creative process is like dialed in. And like, I know when I've kind of lost it and I'm not really going to be doing the piece any justice as to what I want to do. And I actually like painting in multiple sessions because I always catch stuff, you know, you you might feel good about what you do and then you walk away and then you come back two days later. And the second that you walk in the room, you go, Oh man, I, the proportions (laughs) of that are out. I don't like that at all. And then you fix it. And so I, I've, I've sat down and painted a painting in one session very few times. Yeah. I mean, like drizzle stuff, like the drizzle art that I do, like these, like this fly, yeah. like these. I mean, these are like one, one, one quick session, and that, sure. and that's actually fun. That's why I really like them. Like so oil cool. painting is more that's involved, just, and it just takes time. You just use yeah, a brush for that, right? uh, that's a toothbrush. Oh no, kidding! So what I yeah, so what I do with even these the parts is, where it's more pronounced, like like thicker. Yeah, like this actually is just like heavily drizzled there. So like if you cool. take if you take a toothbrush and you dip it in uh, this is and this is just house paint actually. So yep. if you just dip it, bristle end. Mm-hmm. When you pull it out, it holds enough paint so it will it'll drizzle for a long period of time. Whereas like if you just took like a stick and you stuck it in. It's only going to drizzle the little bit of paint that's on the outside of the stick, but like a toothbrush holds paint in it, so you can kind of drizzle longer with it. So cool. Like, that caddis is just awesome. They're awesome. fun. They're fun. They're just different. Like, so something cool. like this takes a long time, yep. and then something like this is kind of free and fun, and you have like a general idea of what you want to do, but then it kind of takes on its yep. own its own mind. They, mean, they don't always come out good. Like, this stuff that you're talking about where it's like a... Like, it's real thick there. Well, the problem is that when you drizzle, at first, it's really well-defined lines. So it takes a little bit of time to get used to it because what happens is if you get too much paint in an area, it just it might have looked great. And then all of a sudden, it just it just starts going – it just turns into a puddle over the whole canvas. Yeah. So you're, you're, what you just tried to define uh, is gone. Yeah. Like less is more type deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, some sense. you know, th- this is just toothbrush too. But I mean, I just take the bristle then and just. That's so cool. It's fun. That's it's really fun. Cool. It's just a dra- It's like such a drastic difference from the yeah. oil stuff. So something, something when your life slows down, at some point you'll come back to a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. For sure. 
Um, let's let's pivot over to the your new business, which is can be fly fishing related. I feel like right? yeah, yeah. So you're uh, now the are you? Is it just you and your wife? You guys are the like, sole owners of it's Western Main Yurts. Western right? Main Yurts. Yep. Okay. Yep. So um, I'm the sole owner of it. Nice. Um, and we started. Uh, well, the thought of it has been going around for quite a long time. Yeah. And uh, my father, who I work with, and our other venture that we do, um, you know, we sound ideas about it. We've, it's been years we've been doing it. And so we had this one piece of property in Bethel yep. um, that we acquired. And it's been probably about three, two to three years of just the planning process and also me trying to clear out time to get to a point where I could actually get there and do the physical work there that needed to yep. be done. So um, got it approved with the town and started construction in um, November of 2020. Like you started putting up the yurts at that point? Or just, just accessing them, like putting in driveways and doing some simple clearing where they were going to go and whatever. You, you got those, I mean... I could be wrong. You got those yurts up pretty quickly once you started. We we did. We did. We erected them. So we erected, uh, there's eight of them yep. on the property Sweet. in Bethel. Um, and we erected them in April of 2021. So it hasn't been quite a year. And then I spent all summer furnishing, um, building lofts in them, um, you know, trail networks, outside landscaping, um, and also doing a bathhouse. So yep. that's kind of the the kind of the standalone feature that we that we feel really kind of appeals to the clientele that would be yeah. staying at a yurt is that instead of going to a yurt and just having an outhouse and no shower facility or anything like that um they're they're tucked into the woods very minimalistic um but you can drive up and park at your yurt and you either have a short walk or there is a parking area so you can drive to the bathhouse. And the bathhouse is a, it's a 28 by 28. I've seen pictures on the outside. What's it look like on the inside? It's uh, The inside is stained concrete floors yep. that are radiant heat. Nice. Um, which it's real nice. Like right now in the winter, you know, you get out of the shower, the concrete's Still nice and warm. warm. And cool. it's nice too because like the water evaporates off the floor quickly, you know, so you don't have wet sloppy floors with yep. people coming in and out. And so the inside of them is uh, stained concrete. It's got galvanized metal uh, roof lower surround up to three feet. Cool. Then it has um, whitewashed uh, nickel gap. Everything else, ceiling walls is all finished nickel gap. It's got some uh, pine beams. Um you have like it's a men's and women's side. A men's and women's side. Okay. Um, which makes it so you have like a shed style cathedral ceiling in them. Cool. You know, it's not a finished off flat ceiling, and there's a there's two toilets on the men's and women's sides. Yep. Two showers, men's and women's side, nice. and then uh, there's like a farm, you know, a water trough style yeah. tub sinks. Like the things you pee in when you go to Fenway. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We don't do that there, though. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah. That's just <laughs> for washing up. <laughs> but people wash dishes in there. Cool. And then, uh, like, you don't have actual running water at the yurt. Yeah. So what we provide is uh, Stanley has these really neat two-gallon two water jugs that are insulated. Yep. And uh, they got, like, real nice fast-flow, like, spigots on them. And so you fill those at the bathhouse. Then you have a small bar sink in the kitchen area. Yep. With uh, an attached gray water system. Cool. You know, so you can drain, you know, uh, 
fluids that you need there and wash your hands. You can do dishes there. Uh, you can do dishes if you want to in your yurt as well. Sure. Um, and then each yurt has currently now a wood stove. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna. I think we're going to be switching over to uh, propane in the majority of them, though. Yep. Um, just for ease. Um, like a monitor heater type deal. Yeah, well, or, Empire, or Empire makes these, uh, they make these uh, RH65 units where you have, it, it looks kind of like that. Yep. It's a little more modern and European looking, but you do have an exposed flame. Cool. So, I mean, you get a little bit of that feel, but we're, what we're finding is the client, because we're kind of winging it, you know what I mean? Like, yep. it, it, it's all new. And yep. so what we found out is that the clientele that we have coming up, at least to the Bethel area, um, they are probably 80 to 90% skiers, at least now, right. because, you know, this is our first, we started in December, really, yeah. as far as renting yeah. them. So we've been going through the ski season. So they're skiers, and most of them are coming from a ways away. So, you know, three o'clock check-in doesn't work for everybody on a Friday. So, you know, a lot of times they'll say, yeah, they'll fill out their pre-check-in form. They might be coming in at seven. Right. And then all of a sudden at nine o'clock at night, I'll get a message that they got a late start and they're going to show up till midnight. And, you know, you had their yurt warmed up and loaded with wood so it would be warm so at 7. And then it's like, right. So yep. I think it's going to work better. I think um, people won't have as high a temperature fluctuations, too, if they're gone skiing for eight exactly. hours during the day. Yep. So that, that's They can also thing. come back to something that's nice and warm. It's nice and warm. Right. Exactly. Right. And, uh, but, yeah, so you have a stove in there. There will be a propane stove. You have a kitchenette. There's, um, you have a... Two chairs and a sofa, um, which is their home reserve. Um, I partnered with them, and they cut me a really awesome deal in in exchange for, uh, you know, media content. Because that's their thing is being in small spaces and renewable, um, which is awesome for us because, you know, they got a 10-year frame warranty. You know, it's it's not a sofa that... If the arm breaks off, it you just got to go buy another sofa. You just call up and they just ship you ship you what you need. Cool. Um, and the fabrics, like you know, you can change your fabrics at any time. So their whole their whole thing is they want you to own the couch for a long time. That's nice. Yeah, and uh, sure. especially because it's gonna get. I mean, if you got people in there all the time, it's constantly getting wear and tear. And it constant wear and tear. I mean, yeah. if somebody spilled a glass of wine, yep. and ruined a couch cushion, I can just just get another one. You that's know what cool. I mean? And uh, and then we got so and I got a friend that's a timber framer. Yep. Um. Well, he's a surveyor that used to timber frame. He doesn't. He, but he's a timber framer. He can do it. He, yeah. Yeah. He, he knows what he's doing. He's the man. He's yeah. the man. So, that's anyways, cool. he uh he did eight timber frame lofts for us. Yep. So each one has got a queen size bed in the lower section of the loft. Yep. Um, and there's like fairy lights woven in, you know, and it's kind of cool. So like if there's just two of you, you can really have like a romantic getaway. Yep. But there's a queen bed up above so you can throw the kids up there, you know, if you're a family of four. Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean, the space works pretty good. We, we're, we're trying to really hit the niche of like this is glamping. A little bit more than glamping, yep. but yet didn't want to try to turn the yurt into a house, you right. know, because there's there's so many different ways to go. It's all it. one open room, right? It's that's, one open that's room. That's the cool thing about a yurt. It's like you exactly. got your kitchen, your living room, your bedroom, yep. all in one space. And you all can see the dome and, uh, cool. you know, you can look out in that vents and, and uh, but yeah, that's the, we tried to make the, the bathhouse is very rustic. High end, luxurious feeling. Yep. The yurts, 
for a year also has that kind of feel, but like we didn't want to have, you know, uh, running water in there and a full bathroom and all that. We really wanted to kind of keep it still a minimalistic experience, but yet you have all the amenities and luxuries you need as far as having a nice hot shower, pretty space to go get cleaned up and shave and brush your teeth. Um, and I mean, we don't even have 110 power in them. Yeah. So what do you run off solar? Yep. We have a, we, what we did was we built these individual small solar systems for each one. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the components are from Renogy, mm-hmm. um, which they're doing some really great things. And uh, I grew up in a solar home, actually. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. My dad's house up at the top I of the hill. I was noticing driving in, too. Holy cow. You guys got a couple of solar panels as neighbors there, huh? Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Couple thousand maybe. Yeah, That's yeah. Insane. Yeah, they did that solar farm down there not that long ago. Yeah. But um but yeah, I grew up in my teen years, so it's been about twenty years and I was blown away by how far the technology has come. I mean sure. when I lived in it they didn't even have LED lights, so I mean we had like CFL bulbs. Yeah. And you had these great big, you know, LED. You can only batteries. draw so much off of like just solar, right? Like you can't like it's hard to run like a 2,500 square foot house, right? Off of all solar. You probably could now easier than you'd think. There's certain things that use up far more power. Yep. Like, I mean, so the big the big thing is your well pump. Yep. You know, so if you got a drill well, you're going to have a 220 well pump. That's going to take a lot of juice. Makes sense. So that, that's kind of the big draw. And then, you know, in the past, there was just like anything that required a heating element and, you know, yep. refrigerators, you know, those have become more efficient. Like when I was a kid, we had, you know, this Sunfrost refrigerator. It was the weirdest looking thing. And it was like really efficient at the time. It was 12 volt. Yeah. Um, but, but anyways, these systems that we got up there, they're very, very simple. Um, you got two panels. Um, they run to a charge controller. Yeah. Um, and then that basically runs to a 200 amp hour uh, lithium battery. And we get really good output with the lithium um, the only downfall of a lithium battery is that it won't charge below 32 degrees. Yep. Um, but the thing that's nice about a lithium battery is that you can draw that down to 10% without damaging the battery. Whereas with le- these older, you know, deep cycle lead acid batteries and yeah, stuff, I mean, yeah. once you get below like 40%, you're really hurting the battery. Gotcha. So, um, and the lithium has like amazing output in cold weather so i mean you aren't limited by that the big thing is just charging and um but what we've done in these yurts is we have that and then everything in the yurt is 12 volts so essentially you have um we have plenty of outside 12 volt like garden string lights you know like over like some p-stone patio areas and there's adirondack adirondack chairs out there so like if you pull up you can see your car what you got to get you can visit outside you got plenty of light and then the inside has got string lights in the whole rafter area going up to the peak um and you have a switch that runs that um it's kind of got like it's kind of like a dimmed a dimmed atmosphere too right yeah yeah it's like it's it's a got a real kind of neat like like ambiance to it and um and then we got the lights in the loft area and that's all 12 volt and uh and the only other thing that we're running off from the system is we have usb plugins so people can charge devices and cell phones with it yeah the now will the propane 
also need to run off electricity, right? Because you'll need it. Do you have like a thermostat for it or anything? Nope. Or? So the the unit that we that we have, we have one of them set up right now, and it's been working really well. So it actually can it can operate with no electricity. Cool. So it's uh yeah, it's an old just uh, twist knob thermostat on the back, and if you had electricity. I mean, you know, you could set up a more sophisticated ter- thermostat setting. Yep. Um, or, you know, if you had Wi-Fi, you could make it so you could control it from, yep. you know, home and all that kind of stuff. And all one room like that, too. It must just hold heat really well in there. It does pretty good. It does pretty good. These ones are a little bit more um, well insulated than some yurts. Like a lot of the yurt companies that are out there, they do um, a thin... Uh, it's kind of like the, you know, like the old, like, uh, you don't really see them so much anymore, but like the reflective bubble wrap that, you know, would be like the flip out things that people would put on their dash. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It basically is that material and they'd wrap the yurt in that and then put the yeah, fabric it was on kind of like a, It's almost like a really high quality tarp. Yeah. I, like in some ways, like some, some yurts are made of that. Material. Yeah. And, and like those will heat fine. Um, this one has that reflective bubble insulation. And then it has a, a half inch of dense foam, and then it has the uh, you know your roof fabric and wall fabrics over the top of that. So it does a better job of retaining heat than other yurts. Um, but you know you got to make sure that the heat source is going. This this January was tough for um, keeping them warm when it was you know we had nights up there that were like twenty eight below zero yeah, really up cold. there. Yeah. But, um, you know, even with doing that, like we went up and did some trial runs ourselves, and we were able to keep it, you know, 65 degrees in there. Yeah. Um, even when it was like 25 below. Yeah. You truly understand how your house works when it's negative 25. Yeah. Like that's the real test. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you walk by the window and you're like, wow. Yeah. I can feel that coming yeah. through. Yeah. So what's the dome like at the top? Does it, so it, the ceiling all comes together, and then there yep. must be a, like you're saying, a little circle dome. Can you see out of it? You can see out of it. So it's uh, you have a circular compression ring, which is really a kind of a work of art when you see when when those come in all pre-built yeah. and they're pre-drilled. The rafters all go into that, and then the center of it is just open. And then once you construct the yurt from the outside, you set down a clear acrylic yep. dome, and uh, they have multiple mounting points. And uh, there's a hinge on one end. And then you have a, an auger screw on the other. So from inside the yurt, you have a long extendable pole with a hook on the end of it. And you grab that auger screw. And when you turn it, um, that dome on one side will actually lift an inch and a half. Yep. And um, so cool. in the wintertime, it's not... Well, when it's 40 degrees outside, it can get too hot in there. Yeah. You know, so like sometimes you might actually vent it a little bit to get some air out. Yep. The, um, in the summer, it's really a big thing. Yeah. Um, we did some experimenting this summer cause we had them erected at least. And if you, each year it has four fabric windows that you, that are four by four roughly, and you can open those completely up. They're screens. So you get good ventilation. So there. they roll up. Yep. They roll, roll up. Yep. Cool. And you, and, um, and there's an awning on the outside too, that rolls up. Nice. And then, um, there's two doors in each year that we have yep. and we did that. I mean, technically it's only one room, so you only need one point of egress. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did two just cause we figured it was just good precaution. You know what I mean? In case yep. something happened to a doorknob or, or what have you, but each one of the dir- doors are actually half window doors. So you actually can lift your window and there's a screen in there. And so even if you don't take the time to 
open up a fabric window mm-hmm. and you just open up your little half windows and the doors and open the dome. We were having interior temps that were over 20 degrees cooler in the yurt that was vented than, than the one that wasn't. Awesome. And so it cools off quick in the summer, you That's know, nice. even if it was a hot day, yep. you know, you can, you can get your temps down pretty quick when it's time to go to bed. Now, where, where in Bethel are you? Uh, so these are off uh, Chandler Hill Road okay. in Bethel. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a unique situation. Like, what, you know, we, people can find us online now by just typing in Western Maine Yurts. Yep. Um, and that's a good way to look at it. We, we keep things pretty private. We don't have like a big Western Maine Yurt sign out front sure. where we have a ton of drive-through traffic. You know what I mean? Because we've kept it very, very tight, very... Uh, ooh cramp um (laughs) (laughs) Um, we uh yeah like it's like it's laid out like a tight campground in there essentially so like in the winter time it's not plowed yeah um we snow blow yeah we have a farm tractor with a snow blower because we just we don't have you know room to we don't have the room to push the snow yeah and uh, it actually took a long time to lay things out and get them set in just because we're trying to save this tree and we're trying to save this tree and kind of, you know, position the yard yeah, in here. That's what I was going to ask you, too, is like, how did you know what to kind of clear? Like, you wanted to have this really cool feeling and if you just clear everything out. Right. You're missing like that tall pine right next to it or whatever, right? Or, or whatever. I think, I think that that's like the... I think that's probably where the artistic end of my personality has come in. And I've been, I've been lucky in that I grew up doing excavation. Um, and I always liked it because the, it, it, there's a very artistic aspect to it. You know what I mean? 100%. Where you look at a piece of property and you say, uh, and you got to have a level of practicality too, you know, where you say, this is, this is going to be the, uh, visually the best place to lay out a driveway uh economically the best place to lay out a driveway uh as far as eliminating erosion it's going to be the best place to lay out the driveway like you have to balance all of those things and um and with the yurts you know the aesthetics of how they set in is is pretty important but you know we've been doing that kind of thing for a long time just not with yurts yeah and uh it oh it definitely it definitely helps and in in the place where they are it's just it lends itself to yurts. It's just, you know, uh, it's actually a little four lot subdivision that we did. We turned it into a little four lot subdivision and, and, yep. uh, you could have sold it and had houses in there, yep. but it's, uh, it's just an evergreen thicket. So cool. And so it, it just looks neat with yurts. Yep. So like in the winter you get ski crowd. Yep. People want to go cross country skiing, snowshoeing, right? Probably, probably around the property or around the property. Yep, there, yep. Right? And yeah, and we're we're working to expand. Um, it's actually on uh, over 120 acres. Um, the lot. Nice. And uh, Chandler Brook runs through it. Nice. Um, and so we're gonna make some trail networks so people can kind of hopefully access that and maybe do some canoeing. Uh, there's a large beaver dam at one end of the property that's not really used anymore, but it's kind of backed up the whole Chandler Brook system to a point where you actually can canoe it, kayak nice. it, and uh, make it so people can ski, snowshoe, yep. and do all that. We've had a lot of people like back backcountry, like uh, like you know cross country skiing, and yeah, sure, kind of roughing it out there, and, yeah. and it's it's cool and. 
man, that's just so much better than just going and holing up at a bed and breakfast or at a hotel or whatever. I mean, it's a different experience. People will want things, yeah. right? But yeah. it's like... It's definitely a different experience. Cool. I mean, we've had... We've had a couple people that I think it was too much for them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and it's one of those things where you can't be everything to everybody. Yeah. You know, we try to be upfront with everybody about what it is, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and I think that the propane will definitely bridge a little bit of that gap, you yeah. know what I mean? I think for some people... Um, well, some people don't like to wake up at 2 a.m. to stoke the fire. Exactly. I and know. a lot of people don't have that experience, you know no, what I mean? Don't. You have a lot of people from away, yeah. and uh, they come up and they, they, they see the yurt, they see the picture of a, of a wood fire. They love the idea. They yeah. love it. But they just... It's just not an experience that they've had with the wood fire. And so I think we'll be able to bridge some of that gap. And, um, you know, they're they're a neat structure. They're just a neat neat structure. What do you anticipate people like in the summer kind of coming? Like what activities could people do in the summer? It's funny. Like uh, Bethel... Because that's like where I snowboarded like growing all up, you know, was the Bethel area. You know, winter, uh, winter it's hopping. It's hopping. And what's funny is back when I was, you know, a teenager or like even early twenties, it was such a ski town. Yeah. And then it was like literally a ghost town, Mm -hmm. like in the summer, but Bethel's done a really, really, really great job. You know, like the chamber of commerce there and the town in general, um, they've really worked with land trusts different interest groups and they've really done a great job of promoting what Bethel and the surrounding area means for summer recreation. Yeah. And, uh, you have, you have some really great hiking right around. Yeah. The, the hiking is great. Mountain biking has exploded. I yeah. mean, and that's, I mean, that's partially just a national phenomenon, you know, where that's kind of like taking off sure. again. Yeah. Um, but the trail network up there is just growing, you know, Mount Abram has downhill mountain biking now. Sweet. Um, there's lots of trail like Bethel Community Forest, which just popped up. They've acquired more land, and they got um, a lot of mountain bike loops and trails, and and uh, so you just see people out biking a lot more. Yep. Um, and the river, like people, I mean, from my standpoint, it's good and bad. Right. <laughs> sure. But but I mean, sure. like uh, you know. Tubers, kayakers, canoers. I mean, the, the traffic in the last five years on the river of people just recreating on it is, you know, kind of skyrocketed. Yeah, well, it's become more of a clean river. Yeah. And the word's getting out about that. Yep. And so people go, what's well, this sweet? Because, I mean, listen, you and I both know, but when you're on that river, it doesn't even have a main feel to it in some ways. It almost has a yeah. western feel to oh, it. Oh, it does. It does, it's like for sure. like surrounded by mountains, which is, you know, it's a main thing, but it's really, like, you just feel... You feel remote in a way, in a little different way than you, like the you do. stuffed in the evergreens type way of me. Yeah, I mean, I it definitely has like that western feel to it. I yeah. think more than any other river in Maine. Um, There's a lot of gravel bottom too. A lot of gravel bottom, a lot of shallow stuff. It's braided with a lot of islands, and there's there's a lot of uh, like low lying kind of grassy flats that meet up to it, and yeah. and then it's surrounded by the White Mountains around it, yeah. and the Mahusics on the other side, on the so north cool. side, and. Yeah, it is. It's pretty. And I think people are going there because they're, you know, in the past, like everybody floated the Saco. Yeah. You know, everybody canoed and kayaked. And I think there's a group of people that that doesn't appeal to them kind of like that feel over sure. there. Sure. So, I mean, 
We're seeing a lot of people recreating there. I think we'll see a lot of that, you know, with the with the yurts and and uh, and people. They just I don't know. They just like hanging out. The White Mountains are nearby. Yep. Grafton Notch is always popular. Well, I mean, you have some of the most technical parts of the AT. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. In the Grafton area. Yep. I mean, I, I every time I hike up spec or something, I always run into through hikers. I always ask them two questions. First thing is like, "What are you eating?" Yeah. I'm so curious what through yeah. hikers eating. I had this one kid one time, he was like, he's like, oh man, he's like, I was eating Snickers all the way to Pennsylvania, <laughs> and he said, have you heard of Reese's Pieces? I was like, yeah, I've heard of Reese's Pieces, I can grow up under a rock. Right, you know? right. He's like, oh, I've been eating those ever since I can't get off them. I was like, all right, cool. There's a section up in Andover where people will get rides off from uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the East B Hill Road. Yeah. So they'll get that ride, you know, up by the falls down. That's right. And uh, we were working. This was back years ago, but we we're working around there, and the and all the through hikers would be there. And I mean, that's that's they've been at it. You they know have. I mean? Well, they're almost. They're getting there. They're know? getting there. Yeah. And I remember, I remember seeing one guy that. I mean, he was, he was, he was emaciated looking. Yeah. And uh, I was sitting there, and it, you know. He smelled bad, and he was like three bar stools down, and they brought him out like a double like bacon cheeseburger and a thing of fries, and it was so funny because I've never <laughs> seen love for food in somebody's eyes yeah. like his. I just looked over, and he, he picked up the burger, and he literally just like looked at it. He's just like, oh, and he's big breath, and then just yeah. dug right in. That's so awesome. And I was like, yeah, I bet, bet that tastes pretty good. I know. I, I always ask them what they're eating, and then I always ask, what's the hardest part? And literally everybody I ran into said the part from New Hampshire coming into Maine was the hardest because you have, I've never hiked it, but yeah. you have these giant boulders from what I hear, like the size of houses. Yep. And it's only a couple mile stretch, but it can take you like all day to navigate it because you're going underneath stuff. You're almost crawling in some parts. You're getting skinny in some places. Like, yeah. It's not not just like a up and then down up and then down it's a lot of left and right well and and like they kind of glide for a while there like they get into some spots and they're like really ripping like yeah. as far as like putting the miles in sure and then, yeah now you yeah. gotta slow down and i think mentally that's the hard part for people it's yeah like, i'm only going to cover a few miles there i'm used to covering 10 plus yeah so that's i think that's always, that always like a dream of mine of like doing the at at some point it's cool yeah it's cool i i I don't know. Maybe I'll get there someday, but my problem is every time I go hiking, there has to be a pond at the end of Hasbro Trail. <laughs> yeah. So, so that wouldn't happen. For no, me. no, no, no. I got to get different motivation. But, um, cool. I really wanted to highlight, obviously, your art and just talk about that. And and um, it's so cool. If if people haven't seen your art before, it's was it Al Poland art. Al, yeah, Al Poland, yeah. Okay, yeah. Al Al Poland, okay. yeah. Is that your middle name? Yeah. I think some people think your name's Al. I know. And oh, I didn't, and I never thought it through. <laughs> I started signing paper paintings that way. Yeah. And, uh, and it was like this weird thing when I started out, I wanted like some sort of like, uh, you know, just didn't want people like, I didn't want my first name out there for sure. some reason. Sure. I have no clue why. Yeah. Now it, now it wouldn't bother me at all. No. And, uh, yeah, I did not think that through at all that, you know, my initials AL was Al because like so many people will show up at shows and stuff and they'll just be like hey Al Al and I'm like not even paying attention no No. and uh I'm like oh yeah yeah Yeah, that's right yeah (laughs) that's so funny um so they can find they can find the art side of you there and then (laughs) you guys have a website for the yurts yep 
Yep. So yeah, if you want to check out uh, my art, you can just you can type in Alex Poland and I'll yeah. pop up, or you can type in uh, AL Poland, All and right. then um, yeah, you probably can even just type in like Maine fly fishing art. I'll pop up. Cool. And uh, and Western Maine yurts is is the is the yurt uh, business. Very good. Are you gonna? Do you think you'll go to any shows this year with the art? <laughs> I might. Yeah. Yeah. I might. I mean, I they might do Western. that. They might do the one out in Bath again there. That was fun. Um, that was pretty cool. It, it was. Good day. It was busy. It was, and it was like a. It was just a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think that's gonna happen again this year. I'm gonna be in Montana when that's happening. Oh man, it's a good trade, I guess. But yeah. I enjoyed it last year; it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. was good seeing you. Well, it was good because, like, I don't know, with COVID, it was just nice to get yeah. out and do something like that. It felt normal, felt right. right. You know, it was like kind of all that halted for so long. Hundred percent, man. Um, so we're at like an hour. I don't want to take up too much of your time because we're cutting into dinner. But I did want to talk to you about the Andrew Scott game. Yeah, yeah. So. so What's cool for me about you and, like, your fishing is you get your family out there a lot, and you guys are just, like, it seems like you're always out on the Andro when the weather's nice. Yeah. And fishing, and maybe when it's not nice, too, but, like, you just go out there and have a day of it, too. Like, you're not just there, like, how many fish can I get? It's, like, taking the kids swimming, right? Yeah. And yeah. just having a day in the water with the family, and for some people, like, it's just, it's so, I don't know, I'm envious of it, and in a way, because I'm... As a guide, I just feel like I'm constantly having to work, work, work when I'm on the water, which right. is fine. I'm not complaining about right. it. Right. But it's cool just to see you. It seems like you just thoroughly enjoy the river. And I, we talked about this you know, before the interview, but the Androscoggin is kind of a place that at one time was really awesome fishing. And now it doesn't seem like it is as much. Yeah. And But you seem like you find little specks of gold along the way that most people are just like, ah, oh, that place isn't good anymore and yeah you find like the true kind of gems and some of the really cool fish that a lot of people don't think even exist yeah so i think i think um i think everybody modern day fishing has been very driven by big fish yep having to catch big fish having to catch big fish every day um knowing that big fish are there you know it's kind of like really a big mindset and i think that that's led to a lot of overfishing in crowds in certain bodies of water. Yep. The Andro hasn't been one of those because it's kind of gotten a reputation for being a crashed fishery. Yep. And um and it really I mean <clears throat> sorry, compared to what it was, it definitely is. Yeah. You know what I mean? But um but I love it. I love it. I love the river. I love I love everything about it. You yep. know, it, it's got you know, we talked a little bit about it like with just the feel and why people are going there more and canoeing and all that stuff. I mean, there's just a beauty that's kind of unmatched there, but, um, that's always been my thing is I'm on the river and I'm just thinking, wow, if like I hear stories from people about how it used to be very good fishing for browns and rainbows. Yep. Yep. And I'm, I'm like, why can't we bring that back and have that? Because it's so beautiful. The water's way cleaner than it was back Mm -hmm. when the fishing was as good as it was in the nineties or whatever. And, um, and I just feel like at some point in my generation, I would love to see that river just thriving. I'd lo- I'd love I'd love to see it too. I think I think the hard part is that, you know, from a state level at this point, you know, they want to keep it so that catch, you know, you got your catch rates up. Yeah. You know, and I think that uh, you know, obviously funding's always a problem. So, you know, there there hasn't been any like real studies done in recent years in regards to it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, they there was a push, you know, kind of at the first collapse, you know, that took place, you know, because it was really booming in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then, you know, they started doing some studies and in 2001, they started stalking it <clears throat> heavily. Yeah. Because they, they were they were stalking before that, right? But not as they heavily. were like, if you go back, I'm a little rusty on it, but back in the 80s, it might have been like 87 or 85, they started stalking. Uh, brown trout but when I say brown trout like they were stalking like 200 brown trout in the entire stretch from Maine to from the Maine New Hampshire border to like you know the falls you know in yeah, right right right. so like it was being stalked but not stalked much right um, but then there's just been other weird stockings along the way some of the tribs had been stalked uh, New, New Hampshire had done some, uh, some stalking um you know the uh, the the National Forest Service actually introduced some rainbows in the wild way up in there, yeah. and like you know, so there were some weird things. So where the genetics of the fish stood or how they came about, you know, I it, nobody really knows. I mean, the the big bows that were there, um, kind of the general consensus is is that they think they were mostly drop downs from New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, that kind of established, and then um, like pre two thousand five, and the studies they did, I. Uh, you know, in the upper upper Andro management, you know, uh, report that they yes, got there. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, there's like copies of that. I think at this point, right? Yeah, there's one in the 2012 somewhere around there. Yep. but there's one before that too. Yep. I've seen the newer one more than I've seen the older one. And yeah, they were doing the studies back then, and you know, there was like I think 13 trips with you know, yeah, wild, yeah, um, rainbow trout at the time, and. But it's sad because everybody kind of points the finger, you know, as to they think this is why it collapsed and this is why it collapsed and this is why it collapsed and this is why it's collapsed. And I think that, you know, a lot of the factors are probably they could be a factor for sure. Yeah. It, I mean, anything is probably, probably be a perfect problem. storm of things. Right? Probably. I mean, a little bit of all of those things. Exactly. Like, I mean, yeah. there was the hurricane that, you know, took out, you know, the bridge up on the wild. And I mean, it really did like kind of. It really, it did. I mean, it, yeah. it, it filled in pools and changed channels. And I mean, it's kind of like putting the river bottom into a blender, you right. know, and like, you know, around that time, like your gravel was very clean in the river. You know, it was like, it was like fresh gravel that really hadn't had light. And, like up in the trips you're saying, right? Well, even, even, even in the main the stem. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, if it's funny, like in the New Hampshire section, you know, the bottom is much more slimy. Yep. You know, you got more more biomass for bug life to kind of, like, adhere to, you know, and eat and, and do all that stuff. So... You think that's because of, of the dams and the mill and all that stuff? Or? I think it definitely could have something to do with it. I mean, it's yeah. kind of funny because, like, your warmer water sections that are dammed up, obviously, are going to have more growth of certain things. Yeah. Um, and I know that's a big thing that's stated. You know, people think that after, you know, the mills closed down... <clears throat> um, which, you know, they're open back up, you know right. what I mean? But, you know, once that happened, they think that the river got too clean because of that. Is there um, a mill in Berlin and Gorham? Not, not, no, no, in just Berlin. Obviously. In just Berlin. Uh, I, yeah, it. right now, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. But, See, like, but like the, the river, though, has changed, though. I would say, I would say that we're, you know, my observations <clears throat> in the last six years is that I'm seeing more of the long, you know, grassy weed beds um 
which those were kind of eliminated after the hurricane. You just didn't really see any of those. And those used to exist a lot, you know, and, and some of them will grow, you know, on riffle areas and you'll have decent hatches below those at certain times of year, you know, and if you take the grass and you like pick it up and you look, there's, there's bug life and, yeah. you know, caddis there's, adhere to it. There's really like, I was, I was going to say that because my thing on the river is that what I can't wrap my head around is the river's cleaner than it ever was. Yep. Or, or since industrial times. Yep. Like, yep. it's cleaner than it ever was. So why is the fishing worse? And and my brain has a hard time wrapping around that because you would think, yeah, clean water, there'll be more bugs, better right. oxygen, be great for the, you know, be great for the, uh, the fish and for the bugs and for just everything in the environment there. But also, I go up there and, like, I see pretty good bug life from up there. I mean, I see yeah. caddis, I see stones, yeah. I see midges, yeah. mayflies. I mean, yeah. it's all there, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but my, I think another part of it, though, is, like, a lot of people who fish just fish certain parts of it, too, though. And they don't look at a lot what's in between. I know you're a guy that gets off the beaten path. Oh, yeah. And like you said, you start seeing things that are you do. Right? You do. You start seeing some things that are promising, hatches, fishing, areas that you know people don't think fish are um you know this year was really kind of a great year because you know we got a piece of property on the river Mm -hmm. and um and it changed how i fished the river because i wasn't so i wasn't so dialed into like only having certain boat launches right you know like i I put in at this boat launch and so what ends up happening when you when you float fishes is is access is hard and then what happens is you you really only fish a certain section of river during ideal peak times. Good point. So what happens is if, you know, yes, there's these boat launches, but in that river in particular is not like, it's not an all day river. No. Like that river will a hundred percent shut off. I mean, shut right completely off. Yep. Obviously when water temps start to get more marginal, that's, that's a bigger thing. But I mean, even when you're, when, even when your water's in the low sixties, I mean, you'll just shut off. I mean, there's so much sunlight that hits that river. Yeah. And, um, it's so wide. It's so wide. You and I talked about this a few weeks back. We're talking like it gets really warm. Yep. But it also cools down really quickly when it's yep. as shallow as it's because it's been very shallow the last five years. I think that's yeah. another this year. Issue this, too. Yeah, this year was the lowest I've seen it. Sure. For a duration of time. Yeah. And um and yes, it did. It would heat up very very quick, and if you had cold weather, it would also cool very quick. That's why like it's kind of a funny river in that more than any other river, the at least large river that I've fished in the state of Maine. That stretch that we're talking about below the big dams in, you know, New Hampshire, all the way down through to, you know, Rumford, um, it fishes like a freestone stream. Yes, it's a tailwater, you know, um, of some form, mostly top spilling dams and what have you. But what, sure. but what I mean by that is that, you know, if you take a, if you take a freestone stream, it's going to be subject to extremely high spring flows. Mm-hmm. and larger temperature fluctuations due to low water yep. and fish are going to be nomadic. Yep. And uh, that is what a trout is it living in, in that system. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, you're seeing huge, huge CFS numbers. You know what I mean? 15,000, yeah, 12,000, 10,000. And then, uh, and then like this summer, 
with it at its lowest, you know, if you were to take like the Gorham CFS numbers, it was it, it dropped down below nine hundred, which was a Insane. historic low. So I mean, Insane. that's a wicked fluctuation. Right. And so the fish part of where it probably gets kind of a tough name from people as well is that you know if you're a wade fisherman, it's an extremely big water system, mm-hmm. um, and the fish move. They move right. They move right, and that also makes it tough because you have. Points where fish will be consolidated. Mm-hmm. You have, um, you know, more limited cold water refuge areas that are going to be used more heavily. Right. And uh, and then the other issue that you run into is the level of stocking that's taking place near cold water refuge areas. Right. So right. it's like I it's creating I, competition. For it's those, creating competition. And I mean, like some of the things that you you've heard in the past. That I don't know how much credibility they have is to the actual results that we're seeing now. You know, like uh, by you know lack of biomass for bug life from the mills. You know, reduction. I don't know. You know, you I've heard. Uh, you know, uh, the Route Two project that they did. Did that take tree cover away so the river was getting more sun? Yeah. I mean that when you get on the river, you see that's not the case. Right. You know. Um, overfishing that's the big one that you hear is overfishing yep. now if you go up to gilead yep there's lots of fishing there yep. if you get in a boat and you float six miles downstream from that point yep. chances are you won't see a single person with a line in the water no, for six miles right so so i don't know about that you know what i mean and yep. so the, Especially if those fish are moving like yeah exactly right. exactly yeah. i mean and and uh so i think I mean, in my opinion on that river, kind of the biggest, most measurable, you know, introduced factor that you could take into account that's probably affected that fishery is the stocking. Yep. And, um, See, you that's, know. that's where I'm at with it, where I'm like, okay, we know what the river is. We know what it used to be. What can, like, what changes can mankind make, right? Like, yeah. like Mother Nature's going to do her thing. If we keep having a drought over there, we keep having a drought over there. Right. We can't do anything about that. But as humans, like, what can we do? Can we can we change our stocking practices? Whether that's adding more, adding less. Right. Stocking less, stocking less of one species or whatever. Right. Can we improve the tributaries? Like, a, like, I don't know. Are the tributaries even sufficient for spawning at this yeah. point? I have no idea. I don't like go up and down. I'd love to. There's a lot of good. Go there, there's a lot of good spawning habitat, um, in multiple tributaries. I think that you know, you could go about it in multiple different ways. I mean, I think that the hard part is that nobody's ever going to get everything that they want. Yeah. You know what I mean. And so the hard part is that. But what can what can we do? Like, I guess part of even why I'm like talking to you about it a little bit is I I don't want to. I don't want to shine more light on it so that people just go there and fish. Right. I want people to go there and see it as like what the potential could be. Right. And I want them to speak up, have a voice, you know, because again, if it's just changing stalking practices, yeah, that's just a bunch of people getting loud, right? And saying, hey, this is getting, this is pointless. Like, why are you putting, we've talked about this before on this podcast, but like, why are you putting podcast, uh, podcast, why are you putting brook trout in Lisbon? (laughs) Yeah. Like, what are you doing? It doesn't make sense. It makes no sense. It doesn't make sense. And I mean, that's the biggest thing that I, you know, if anybody listens to this and they want to, you know, contact the biologist 
and make some noise. I think that the biggest thing that people need to do is they need to fall in love with a river system and then figure out what's best for that river system. And making blanket blanket kind of statements statewide just doesn't always work. You know what I mean? Like, like we're sitting here and, you know, uh, like the presumpscot, you know, I mean, if, if you stop stocking there, there's not going to be a thriving trout fishery. They're not the same place. It's not the same place. But the thing about the Andro that's unique that I find is unique compared to other fisheries is that they have the formula for success because they did it. And that was, they didn't do anything. Right. So what happened, you know, I grew up in the area, you know what I mean? Like Woodstock where I grew up as a kid is, you know, about 20 minutes from, you know, this this section of river that we're talking about. And, and what they did was they did nothing. Everybody thought everybody locally there thought the river was trash. It was dirty. You'd never let your kids swim in it. Nothing. So, I mean, they did nothing there. Right. Hardly anybody fished it. And then all of a sudden, People start catching huge trout. Well, why are they catching huge trout? It's because they had a chance to naturalize. They had a wild population. I think what happened was people didn't really know how delicate that population was. Yeah. You know, and so what happened is, yeah, you know, people start fishing over it. And then they're fishing over it in July. And they're fishing over it in August. You know, in the, water, in the river, 75 degrees. And they're catching 20-inch rainbow trout and 20-inch brown trout. And they're stressing these fish and they're dying. Yeah. And then and then, then in the early 2000s, around 2001, you know, the state starts dumping 12,000 stocked fish into, the, into you know, this 40-mile stretch of river. So now you have this interesting kind of combination of, of uh, mixing genetics, competition, you know, and what's and, sad is that that put all that stocking was like a band aid, right? Because like you said, it kind of got a little popular. Yeah, people started taking bigger fish out. Guides, local people, yeah. local fishermen started saying, "Hey, we're not seeing the fish numbers anymore. Yeah, let's do something about it." And sadly, that was to stock more, which we know is not a great thing. And I know that um, I saw this a long time ago. Then I saw you post something about it a while ago too. Was like the how Dick Vincent did yeah. things out in Montana. Yeah. And it was like, spend time on restoring the habitat, not just on stocking. You yeah. You know what I mean? And and look at Montana. I mean, you don't have to stock it. You just, it does it itself, you know? Yeah. And like, and like I think Dick's story is really unique. Should have gotten the link. That would have been kind of a cool thing to share for people to yeah. watch. It's great. It's um, you Just go to YouTube. It's called the Montana Fish Story. Yep. It's as simple as yeah. that. Yeah. And he, he's sitting down in a library, you know, yep. in, his, in his golden years talking about all the findings that they had. And it's really fascinating because, like, it's primarily he's talking about the Madison. And, and uh, you know, the Madison back in the late 60s and 50s and stuff really wasn't that much different than a lot of the fisheries that we got that are collapsing now. That's what a lot of people don't know. And that's the interesting part is a lot of people think Montana's always been Montana. Montana right. wasn't always that Montana. That was shit. Exactly. And it, it was, was going, it was plummeting because they were stocking it and stocking yeah. it and stocking it. And, and they and, were dumping stuff and like a lot of farming practices were yeah. going into the rivers. It wasn't good. And like they didn't have, they didn't have the weight, you know, to, to work with, you know, some of the hydro companies and stuff. And so water was an issue, but like, yeah, I mean, but basically out there, what was so fascinating in, in uh, that interview with him is that. They studied their stock fish and found that only 1% of the fish stocks survive. There's a 99% kill in the first year. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the late 60s, 70s right. when they were, when he was, he basically decided overall, right, to stop stocking. Yep. And people were like sending him death threats. Like, yeah, they were. Yeah. You know, yeah. He like, he, and, and what was funny was he didn't have like a preconceived notion. He actually thought originally that 
it was flow related. Yeah. So what it was is there was two sections of the Madison and one was a really poor, historically a very poor producing section or wasn't used very much. And then there was one that was like this trophy stretch that was used a bunch. So what they ended up doing was they, they kind of, they, they stopped stocking this one that wasn't getting utilized, this one section of the Madison. And then they were stocking the other section and he went to the hydro companies and he said it was shoddy data convinced them to change their flows to what he thought would be optimum for the fish during spawning times and what have you. Kind of like what we'd like to do here with Brookfield. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, and, and they listened to him. That's crazy. And they listened to him. But, yeah. what, but what he found that was fascinating was that the section that they kept stocking heavily, that was the tro- quote-unquote trophy section that was plummeting, saw zero improvement. Mm. And then the section that they had stopped stocking, they saw improvement. So then he started to think, well, is this even flow-related? Maybe this is actually stocking-related. Yep. So then he went and uh, convinced the higher-ups that be to let him actually, back in the day, stock a completely wild trout river. So they, and he said, this is what I think is happening. I think stocking is impacting our fisheries more than anything. And, uh, so they let him do it. And when he did it, he found out that in the first year of stocking, he had a 50% reduction of wild fish in one year. Wow. In one year. Wow. And so that was what made, that's what made him, you know, push and eventually got some traction to make it so that Montana does it. They, you know, they have, they have a policy that they don't stock over wild fish. Right. And, uh, and when, when that decision was made and they were going to stop stocking the Madison river, like he, you know, he, like in the interview, he says, you know, they he couldn't go to the diner, you know, like he's getting death threats. People wanted to beat him up. It's pretty rough crowd back in the day that yep. really, they wanted to catch fish. And the thing is, is it's, it's the same today with this far forward. And the problem is, is what's happening is when you talk about not stocking a s- section of river, such as what we're talking about, everybody's so concerned about catch rates yeah. and they aren't concerned about what's best for well, the river. What's crazy is people don't even keep the fish out of where we're fish, where we're talking about, because they don't. you're not really supposed to consume fish out of the end just because of the high mercury levels. Yeah. Right I think they say that so. you can eat too. And I would be terrified too. So I guess the point here is, is like, I'm with you on the fact, like, why not just try something different? Like, why not stop stocking it for two years and just see what happens? You'll, yeah, exactly. Because what do you got to lose? So, so uh, you can just start back up and be where you are right now. Yeah. So, I mean, and my thing is like, you know, it it is a stocked fishery primarily. Yes. I, I catch some wild fish there occasionally. And, uh, but what could those wild fish do if they had the room to thrive that they need? You know what I mean? What if they had full access to cold water refuge? Right. Because or, the stock trout are giving them competition for food. They are. Food, cold water refuge, and the stock trout are just, they, they feed all the time. Yeah. I, and I think, I think that if you got into the stock trout, there's varying levels of problems. Yeah. You know, like, uh. It, it's kind of interesting in that, you know, like the Androscoggin Watershed Council and, uh, <clears throat> you know, that have their annual meetings and they're doing great stuff with river access and everything. And then you've got Mahoosic Land Trust who owns the majority of the, the uh, river access points up there. You know, they've all worked together. I mean, like, like on the, you know, like on the Bear River, I mean, they, they went in and, you know, reinforced an eroding banking and got woody debris and stumps in there and all this different kind of stuff. Awesome. And they're doing it all for brook trout habitat. And then literally, 
you know, uh, 300 yards downstream, um, a, a truckload of stock, you know, a thousand stock brook trout get put in. Right. And so it's kind of like you're doing, you're, 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 everybody needs to get on the same page there. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. so what are we trying to do? Do we, do we want to, do we want to increase wild brook trout habitat in the tribs, which there's lots of wild brook trout in many tributaries to the Androscoggin River? And you can catch brook trout. They aren't huge brook trout, right. but you can catch them in the andro yeah, during exist. certain times of year. You know what I mean? Like right. they, they use that river when the water temps, you know, allow. allow. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's the same thing with like the wild, you know, they, it, you know, th- that gets stocked with, with brook trout, mm-hmm. you know. So but it also and- has a native population. It also has a native population, but I feel like it's plummeted since they started doing that Mm -hmm. you know i mean it's 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 hard now to find wild brook trout um you can get into more in the upper reaches of it but it's just you know it's one of those things where um it just doesn't make sense you know they, they there's they usually i think do like two stockings of like 600 brook trout in the wild and it's in the spring yep and uh there's usually a high water event yep and they all get flushed right out to the mouth of it in the andro. Yep, and I've seen them all there. Yeah, they, they sit in these little channels too, which is funny. Yep. you can see them all, like they'll all be kind of stacked facing up like the wild or something. Yeah, there's one cold water channel sitting there. But I mean, to your to your point though, is they're just taking up room for the wild fish. They are. They're just taking up room, and and the hard part is, you know, I think that I think that the stock brook trout probably have had a higher degree of impact on say a wild rainbow trout in the androscoggin river yep. system and the reason why is because they get stocked in areas where there would be cold water refuge not just the wild there's right. other areas too and you know i won't name all these other tribs you know because sure, sure, people out so. you know hitting them up and what have you but yep. like you go there and there will be these stock brook trout and uh the problem is that you know brook trout stocked or not is going to die if he's in you know, 75 degree water. Yep. But a bow and a brown, you know, like a bow's lethal temp is like 78. Yeah. And like a brown is like 80. Yeah. You know, so like what happens is these brook trout move into these cold water refuge areas, wherever they are, spring holes, tributaries, and they move into them before say a rainbow that is wild is like seeking that out. So they're taking up the good holding position. They're taking up the good holding position. So, I mean, I think that there could be improvement. You know, I'd love to see what happened if it wasn't stocked at all. At the very least, I would love to see them stop stocking brook trout. That's what I was going to ask you. But when least, what would you do? What's the first baby step? The least I would do is just completely eliminate stocking brook trout because it would do multiple things where, um, you wouldn't be impacting the wild brook trout population that's there. Right. I think that there wouldn't be quite as close of an interaction between the stocked fish and say a wild rainbow or a wild brown. Yeah. Um, and you know, and th- and those fish do exist. They're few and far between. You know what I mean? We we catch some of these anomaly fish here and there. You know what I mean? It happens. Mm-hmm. It yeah. happens where you 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 catch this beautiful specimen. It's a large fish. Um, it's not in the size range that they stocked, you know, because right. they've been stocking these big brood fish too in there. Yep. And, uh, and you can tell the difference. I you mean, it's, really, it, it's super easy to, but like, yep. you know, it's just though that, that population that was that trophy population back in the day originally, uh, you know, established itself from basically nothing. Nothing. Right. 
You know, so it's like you started out with a few fish, you know what I mean? And a few more fish and a few more. Well, they were stocked at one point, like we talked about, but they really like turned into, into wild fish at that point. Right. After a time. So, um, I think that's awesome. And I, I think that, you know, I don't feel like I'm insulting anybody here by saying like, who the hell is going there to the big river to catch a, to catch the 10 inch brook trout that they're stocking. Right. Right. Like if that's you and you're listening to this. And we're killing your vibe. I'm really sorry. But I agree with you. I think that's a good place to just start. Because you're just... All that holding water where they go when it's when they need cold water could be, you know, inhabited by these fish that are wild. Let's start there. And again, though, why not stop stocking all those rainbows and even the browns or oh, whatever? I'd be for all for it. I'd be all happens. for it. I mean, I, I'd love to see it happen for like five years, you know, because like... It, what's the big risk? Right. You know what I mean? You you can just start up tomorrow. You know, I mean, you can go five years and then tomorrow you can start and you're in the same place that you are yeah. today. You can okay. start, you can put big brood fish in yeah. and you can put in all these, you know, cookie cutter stock fish and you're in the same place. Yeah. The thing that's funny too is it's like, you know, I'll fish the river year round. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If I can. Mm-hmm. You know, I fish it before the stock trucks show up. Sure. I fish it well after there's not many stock fish around. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh. But the thing about wild fish is that they're always there. Mm-hmm. They're always mm-hmm. there. They adapt way better than the stocked ones. They do. And, and like, you know, there's just, there's something to be said with, you know, you have a place with a wild fish population and it's April 1st. I mean, yeah, you might not catch fish because the water's real cold that sure. day, but they're there. They're there, right. They're there. They're there. And they're feeding. They're, they're there. Getting ready. They're there. And I mean, but I think, I think the hard part too is that. You know, Gilead is Gilead is fished hard. It is, yeah. And and I would it's say easily accessible. It's easily accessible yeah. and I think that probably a good majority of the people that fish it are beginners. Yeah. Um it's a really easy you you can get out into the water, you have room to cast without catching trees. There's, you know, stock fish to be caught there. Yep. Um there's some great holding spots. Yeah, I mean it's and it's a it's an amazing place to learn. Yes. But, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, maybe more experienced anglers that I know have kind of given up on it mm-hmm. and they, they go fish other places. Yep. They go fish other places where they can catch wild fish, more wild fish, yep. uh, bigger fish, mm-hmm. um, and they can do it consistently. Yep. And so, unfortunately, I just feel like, you know, since... Probably the upper management, you know, plan was put out in 2012. Um, I think, like, popularity amongst people that care about the river has kind of waned a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. And, um, I mean, if anybody's listening, I would definitely urge them to, you know, look into what stocking can do to a river. Yeah. You know, and, like, you know, have a voice, you know, like... Um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you who to contact, but look up who your local biologist is and t- talk to them. You know what I mean? Like, um, cause they, they like talking to you. They do. They like talking to you. I they mean, do. it's, it's not like, uh, and they'll even agree with you on a lot of it. They will. It's their not hands, like, their yeah. Their hands are tied sometimes. Their hands are tied sometimes. And it's not like they're looking down on you. Like they, they want to know what you have to say, but it's one of these things where I just always kind of wonder, cause like sometimes, 
certain groups that get involved with certain things, you know, it can come across as they're kind of trying to strong arm something, you know what I mean? And it's like, sometimes I just wonder what would happen if randomly 50 individuals in the state of Maine had a common voice, common idea, and as an individual, they just contacted. 100%. You know, what would happen? I mean, well, I mean, as a, you we've know. seen some changes in the last couple of years because they're actually allowing yeah. more public comment now. Yep. Um, they've, they've opened it up the last couple of years and they even made some changes in the Western Maine area based on people's recommendations. Yep. And like you said, I don't think the crowd who wants those 10 inch brook trout is, is louder than the crowd of people who would really enjoy to see that river be more than what it is now. Yes. You know what I mean? So The hard like, part is to get to that point. It's no different than, like, if you look at any state that's had, like, antler restrictions on deer. I mean, it's no different. It, I mean, it really is no different. And I mean, like, you know, where you look at your numbers and, like, over 50% of, you know, a buck kill in, 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 in each state is probably going to be yearling bucks. So they're going to probably be spike horns and, and four-pointers. Yep. And, like, you know, like Vermont, they – they, they issued an antler restriction where I think theirs is you can't, you know, the deer has to have a, one antler that's three got three points or more on yeah. one side. And huge kickback. Same thing in Pennsylvania when they started doing that. You know, and, and everybody was so upset until three, four, five years go by and everybody's just shooting these... Monsters. Yeah, smasher bucks. Yeah. And they're like, this is amazing. This yeah. is great. And I think that that's... The thing about some of these fisheries is it's like everybody, when you're at the bottom of the barrel, everybody's, they, they, they don't want to lose what's in the bottom of the barrel. Right. So like right now you can go up there and you can catch the 10 inch fish like you're talking about that are stocked and you know, the brook trout have no fins on them. Right. You know, you can go catch those, but you're at the bottom of the barrel, but everybody's like, but I'm here now. Yeah. And you know. I like the top shelf stuff. It sounds great, but like I, I don't want to do with without anything for a period of time. Well, change is hard in a place like Maine where we're not very progressive. Yes, it's all a lot of old time thinking, and people don't love change in New England. That's just the no. That's a New England thing. They don't love change, <laughs> and they think people are progressive or radical, and it's not like I mean. Come help, like come help Alex out here, right? Like you're you're out there in the woods by yourself, screaming at the top of your lungs. Stop stalking. Let's just try it. You know, yeah. like see what happens. And you've talked to biologists about it. You've talked to all kinds of people about it, and it's not happening. You know, and I'm like, for me, it infuriates me because I know that you're somebody who spends more time out there than than most people, right? right? And you see what is probably good for the resource, and no one's listening. And that's the part that that pisses me off about it, you know? I think... I'm not living forever, man. No, no. And I think that... I think that just public support is the biggest thing that it needs. And that's why... That's why... The biggest thing that I can just urge anybody, and this goes for rivers beyond this, is just... Take the time and fall in love with a resource, and then you're going to want the right things to happen for it. You, you know what I mean? And, like, if if you if your goal is to just go around and, and, and catch the biggest fish at the most opportune re- rivers and streams all over the state of Maine at the best times, you know, you're going to spend a little bit of time here, a little bit of time here, a little yeah, bit of time here, a little bit of time. Right, exactly. Yeah. And what happens is, like, you're taking the best of the best, but you aren't, you aren't like, taking in the whole story. Yep. And yep. so... If everybody could just fall in love with any stream that needs a little bit of help, advocate for it. I mean, I'm hoping I'm going to have more time in the future. 
I'm hoping these yurts take off, you know, and I'm going to have some more time because it's like, it's a little bit of a burden for me. I mean, I, I really care about that resource so much. Yeah. And, um, and I think that there's, you know, there's more changes that probably should take place even beyond the stocking issue. You know what I mean? I think like, I think that it's a prime candidate for warm water closures. Um, that would definitely, like you saying, like change is hard. That would, that would blow people's minds. It would. I mean, like if you sat there and told somebody that like, it was going to be monitored and if they were fly fishing in the river, you know, at one o'clock on July, you know, 30th when it's, you know, a hundred degrees out, they would be like, well, I want to, I bought my license. Exactly. That that would be, that would be the trainer. I bought my license. I'll do what I want to do. Leave Leave me alone. And it's hard to, it's hard to bridge that gap. It is. But also I think a lot of people aren't educated. And I also think that like, I mean, it's 2022. Why can't you go put a, a thermometer out in the river, right? As yeah. a boat launch, yeah. let's say, at yeah. a popular spot. Yeah. Put a put a thermometer out in the river, and it literally can be hardwired back to a sign on a tree and say, yeah. water temperature, 72 degrees. You have a chart next to it, right? And it's like, yeah. anything over 70, you shouldn't fish today. Like, at, at a very minimum, you're, you're at least educating people. Well, and, and, and like I've thought about it and I, and I'm going like to see if I'm taking the temperature for them. You know, <laughs> you say, Hey, go take a temperature and this is where it should yeah. be like, I mean, take a form. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just have a digital readout. I mean, I Why think not? have some signage at least. I like that idea. At a minimum, just have signage though. Right. Well, like, well, I mean, I've thought about, cause like I said, Mahusik owns the majority of all the launches there and you know, this summer it'd be great to go talk to them. Yeah. And what would be amazing is to see if you could put out signage that is just educating. Mm-hmm. Explain what happens to a fish under stress due to warm water. Yep. List out what warm water is considered for each fish. And you know, what are good temperatures for each type of fish? Exactly. And then you're also helping have people thermometers there. Fish. That's the thing. Like I wonder if they would get stolen or to be returned. So my thing is like, what if you had, it's you know, point. a peg with like five thermometers yeah. there? Yeah, please return after you use. Yeah, please return after you use. And also, though, like, you could have a temperature chart there and say, hey, between 52 and 60 degrees, caddis will start hatching. Right. And now you're, like, telling people how to fish for them, which is right. great. You're, like, right. helping them in a way. You're not just limiting, saying, don't do this. You're like, hey, the water's 55 degrees. Great time to throw a dry fly on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Stuff like that, to me, is, like, it doesn't take a lot of effort or a lot of technology or a lot of money to do that, you know? It doesn't. It doesn't. And I think, but it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. It takes time. You got to get the time. right people on board, you know, and you got to know, you get, like you said, music land trust, state, you know, you got to know those things. But like even last year, we got really warm water in the summer and people all over social media in Maine started tagging Maine Inland Fisheries and just saying, you know, hey, you're going to do anything about, you know, just educating people and stuff. And not two weeks later, after most people were doing that. Yeah. You get an email talking about warm water and yep. when it's safe to fish and all yep. that stuff. Go fish for bass. Like, I mean, they don't even push people to go fish for warm water species in this state. No. At all. No. It's not all brook trout and salmon. We have so many other good species of fish to catch here. And it's like, we could promote those things while helping give something a rest. You know what I mean? But we could. And I think, I think that, unfortunately like the species that everybody wants, you know, trout and salmon. I mean, you control and catch those year round. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where it's definitely touted as being a year round species that you can get. You can ice fish for it. 
You can fish for it in the middle of the summer and catch them. And uh, I think that streams and rivers, um, because of the complexity of them, um, oftentimes get overlooked. They do. You know, and and that's kind of the hard part. And then, you know, I just really think that, and like I said, any stream, any stream or river, have a conversation. things are changing now. Fly fishing is becoming way more popular. It is. Right? And with that... These people who are engaging in fly fishing, people are listening to this podcast. Like, those are the people who need to start speaking up. So, yeah. maybe some changes need to happen because more of these rivers are getting more attention, right? They're getting more pressure. And I think people are feeling that. Yeah. I think, especially post-COVID, COVID has been like a absolute game changer for that. I can't tell mm-hmm. you. That's probably been the biggest thing in the the main fishing circle that I know is people talking about pressure because mm-hmm. there's just, there's, there's waters and rivers that weren't pressured or, or they, they were pressured, but it was like, um, more of a predictable and manageable amount of pressure, I guess I should say, sure. you know, like, um, and, and, and all of a sudden like numbers of like, you know, tripled and quadrupled the amount of people on rivers. Yeah. I mean, there's, I won't mention names, but there's rivers that I've driven by that I always would fish and I'd go by and you might see three cars and there's like 13, 14 cars out. And I'd just be like, nope, not today. Not going to bother, right? Nope. I'll just go, you know, pass on by. Like fly fishermen, like you talk about, people who drive around the state chasing big fish certain times of year. I mean, some people are willing to get out of work and go drive for three hours to fish for three hours and then drive three hours back. Yeah. It's a thing. I've done it before. You know, it's, it's part of like, the obsession with fly fishing. Yeah. But instead of always taking from the resource, like let's try to have a voice and take care of it also. Yeah. And like know when enough is enough. Like yeah. don't go fishing in your own July. Like it's right. most likely gonna be in the seventies. Yeah. Like know when enough is enough. Exactly. Be respectful of the resource. Yeah, and like I think that people are gonna have to open up their minds a little bit to just like different chasing different things you know what i mean it's like take maine it's like you know there's trout fishing months and it's like you know uh like i like fishing in june you know the water's nice and cool and is it easier for me the style of striper fishing i do to catch stripers in june yeah actually typically it kind of is but i don't right but then like july rolls around water's getting warm okay well i'll go see if i can catch some stripers exactly i'll go float and i'll catch some smallmouth right you know um and you know, enjoy the diversity that we have for fish. Don't get so hung up. I mean, like we were talking earlier, I mean, I'm a trout snob, you know what I mean? You're a trout snob. I mean, Mm -hmm. but at heart, heart, you know, at heart, like if, if you were to say what, what's the ideal fish that you want to go fish for, you're going to, but I mean, at least not every day has to be your ideal day. Exactly. And I mean, and then like, you know, the more you fish, the more it's just about it's about other things than just fish. I mean, the fish are a big aspect of it, but there's other things that make it great, you know. And, and just having a day out is good. And so I think broadening our horizons and that and and how we think about that would definitely help a lot. And I think, but the biggest thing is just local waters. You know, I mean, it's like I know so many people that you know they they live here near a struggling fishery and they they don't fish it. They don't, they don't know anything about it. They don't, you know. And they drive far to go to. And then they'll drive three hours and they add to the pressure at this, you know, primo fishery and they go there every weekend. And it's like, yeah, I'm not saying don't fish there. Right. That's not what I'm saying at all. I mean, enjoy the state. I love traveling around and fishing all the primo fisheries. It's amazing. I agree. But like, you know, 
don't go there all the time. Exactly. You know what I mean? And maybe, maybe take the time to figure out what is going on with your local fishery. Yep. You know, okay, this is collapsed. Is there wild fish? I don't know. Yep. You know, that's, get that's a rod. Go, go, go fish some of the little tiny tribs of it. Yep. We need to be collecting the data because nobody is, right? No one's collecting that. No one knows upon a late June night if the brown trout fishing is good in this stretch or not. You know what right. I mean? Like right. If you're right. always If you're always on the east outlet or always on the west branch or somewhere else, you're not really... Trying those things out, so you aren't trying them out, and I mean, right. and some like some of my best fishing memories are just those random weird things, you know, where you're just like, really? you're just like, okay, I'm gonna go try this area, or I'm gonna try this river that I've never gone, or this stream, or something, and like every once in a while, you are absolutely shocked. Sometimes you find out a little secret gem on your own, nobody else knows about yep. it, yep. and. Especially now, you got to hold those things kind of close because yeah. that's like that stuff gets out now, and it's I like. Know. And I made I made those mistakes when I was younger. I mean, there was when I first started fly fishing, and my ego was like higher. I would you know tell people stuff, and then it just it blew my mind. You know, there'd be places where you fish and you don't ever see anybody, and then all of a sudden you say something, and like a week later you show up, there's like five people there. Exactly. You're yeah. like, hey, my buddy Alex told me about this spot. Right. <laughs> and then you're like, and then man. see him, but then, oh, you know Joe? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this is my friend from a friend. <laughs> from, I was like, wow. Yeah, but that's kind of the whole, the modern day social media fishing area, you know, era. But yeah. Yeah. it's different. It's changed it. I agree. So in short, though, I really think that at a minimum, they should try some stocking. Some some less stocking, yes. some stocking changes on the yes. on the interscope. Yeah, that's what I would say at a very a very minimum. That's what I would totally agree with that, and I would yeah. say at a, at a minimum, stop stocking brook trout and see what you see. Yeah. Um, at a maximum, I'd love to just see them just stop. Sure. See what it does. I mean, that would be that would be like an out of the box kind of thing. Yeah. To try that would be awesome. Um, and then like and you'd you almost know, want to kind of discourage fishing there for a couple of years while you do that right just like, uh, like literally put it out there as a study you yeah know, and just, just see what happens that's what they did in montana look at it today well like i well the, <laughs> the thing i i would love to see them stock it and then i'd love to be able to stop stocking it and then i'd love to fish it and then really have a true 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 feel yeah and think about it, the bug life that would come back, though. Yeah. Right? If you didn't stock it and you just had wild fish there for... Well, and it's, it's so tough. Like, I mean, you're talking about, like, the brook trout. Yeah. It's like, these brook trout, you know, they'll have no fins, yep. ragged, torn-up tail. Yeah. And you can sit there and it will... I mean, I'll, I'll go watch some of these areas when the water's too warm to fish. Like, I'm not fishing. I'm, sure, there, right. I'm just there watching. Just observing. Them. Right. And... And you'll sit there, and it could be ninety degrees, mm-hmm. middle of the summer. You got a you got a water temp of 75, 76. Mm-hmm. and uh, and th- there'll be one of these stock brook trouts rising for you know midges in the middle of the day. Yep, just rising, yeah. just just expending energy, exactly. expending energy, and they're just sad to look at because if you do catch one that did manage to make it through the summer, yeah. like say say uh, September October. Well, they don't have to conserve um, their energy. Well, oh, they, stock, they, stock they're, they're, they're the freakiest looking fish you've ever seen. Yep. Yeah. When they stock them, they're fat. You know, like those stock, you know, brook trout are pretty yeah, fat. Well, bread for, for, for they, well, they <laughs> like literally in a matter of like three months, they'll look like a uh, brook trout patterned eel. Yes. With a giant head yep. and a huge freakish looking eye. Yeah. And sometimes they get a hump on their back. Yeah. 
I almost refer to them as a pancake because they're so thin. <laughs> it's sad. Like it's they're actually sad. Like, I call them pancake brookies, and I it is sad. I referred I refer to the brook trout and the androscoggin as a terminal trout. There you go. Because it's like they got terminal cancer. They're yeah. just the the minute that they get put in, there there's there's no option for them. Right. Right. They're they're gonna die. It's a crazy spot. Crazy spot we're in, but. Hey, listen, I'm only taking a minute of time. It's, it's past dinner time here. Um, so, just to recap, you can find Alex's art at alpolandart, right? Yep. Dot com. Yep. WesternMainYurts.com for yep. your yurt stuff. Yep. And uh, go do some research on the Andrew Scott and go get out there and check it out. Just kind of see what we're talking about. If you've never been on the river, just go see how beautiful it is. I mean, don't go with their high expectations, but just go kind of see. And if you're feeling good about it, you know, use your voice a little bit. And yeah. Advocate for something. That's what we need. So, hey man, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. Please go back and listen to some of our previous episodes and help support some of the folks that are doing some really cool things here in the fly fishing industry in Maine.